Before I start today's episode on democracy, I would like to take a moment to thank you, listeners, for, well, listening. Please, please, please do go and like, subscribe, or follow. If you happen to be using Apple's podcasts, and even if you are not, please do go on there and leave a review. It really helps others find the podcast. I have been blown away by the number of listeners who listen in regularly to various episodes of this podcast. I cannot thank you enough, and I hope you enjoy this and other future episodes. So a big, huge thank you. Now on with the show. Democracy, in the most literal of terms, means rule of the people. The term is derived from the Greek demokratia, which was coined from demos, meaning people, and katros, meaning rule. Back in the 5th century BCE to denote the political systems then existing in some of the Greek city-states, most famously Athens. Other than that, there isn't really a universally accepted version of what democracy is. If it's ruled by the people, then really it's any system that isn't ruled by not the people. And by the people, we must assume it is someone, not a monarch of some sort. A republic, on the other hand, is a Latin translation of the Greek word politia. The Roman writer Cicero translated that word as republica, and it was in turn then translated by Renaissance scholars as republic or republic. So a republic denotes a type of government that is, in its most basic terms, not a monarchy. Just as the Roman Republic was not the Roman Kingdom that came before it, nor was it the Roman Empire that came after it. Both democracy and republic are not monarchies. The similarities end somewhat there, though. Republics are a type of government. And in my view, a democracy is a process of governing. The United Nations suggests that, and I quote here, Democracy is a core value of the United Nations. The UN supports democracy by promoting human rights, development, and peace and security. In the 75 years since the UN Charter was signed, the UN has done more to support democracy around the world than any other global organization. The UN promotes good governance, monitors elections, supports the civil society to strengthen democratic institutions and accountability. It ensures self-determination in decolonized countries and assists in the drafting of new constitutions in post-conflict nations. When the founders of the United Nations drafted the United Nations Charter, they did not mention the word democracy. In 1945, many of the UN member states did not endorse democracy as a system or didn't practice it. Yet, the opening words of the Charter, We the Peoples, reflect the fundamental principle of democracy, that the will of the people is the source of legitimacy of sovereign states and therefore of the United Nations as a whole. End quote. Now, of course, the UN itself isn't democratic. Even though it supports democratic ideals, it is not democratic itself. 
The UN goes on to state, and I quote again, the UN does not advocate for a specific model of government, but promotes democratic governance as a set of values and principles that should be followed for greater participation, equality, security and human development. Democracy provides an environment that respects human rights and fundamental freedoms, and in which the freely expressed will of the people is exercised. People have a say in decisions and can hold decision makers to account. Women and men have equal rights and all people are free from discrimination. End quote. It's a reasonably good definition of democracy. Not only is it hard, though, to define democracy, and the UN has done a pretty good job here, but just about everyone, including me, have a version of democracy in our minds. Some people associate it with elections, a free press, a republic of some sort, freedom of expression, personal freedoms, privacy, independent judiciary, basic rights, free press, etc., etc., etc. However, these are not at all a process of governing. I'd like to take a moment here to refer you to one of my earlier episodes, so do bear with the quality of that episode, where I talk about the freedom or the history of freedom in episode 5. In a democracy, you don't need to be a republic. You can be democratic, but not have a totally free press. You can be a democracy and still curb freedom. You can be a democracy and have no free press. And importantly, you can be a democracy and have no elections. Remember, a democracy is ruled by the people, and that is anyone who is not a monarch. I'll get to modern democracy a bit later, but first know that democracy isn't some modern invention. A primitive democracy usually takes shape in small communities or villages when there are face-to-face -face discussions in a village council or with a leader who has the backing of village elders or other cooperative forms of governance. We know this by visiting a modern tribe or tribal villages. Often, many members of the village get together to decide, with elders often making societal decisions. Power doesn't always reside in one person, such as a monarch, and we know that from our tribes today and in the past. So democracy isn't new. It's part of how human societies govern themselves from the earliest days of human evolution. The ancient Greeks, though, are most famous for defining and writing down the term democracy, or at least how we use it today. They aren't necessarily the inventors of the machinery, but they had the foresight to codify it, write it down, so that future Western Europeans could copy and paste it, and then make it their own. Voting has been used as a feature of democracy since about the 6th century BC, when it was introduced in Athens. Of course, not everyone was equal enough to be able to cast a vote, so it wasn't necessarily what we would call universal suffrage, and I'll get to what that term means a bit later on. Back in the good old days, ancient Greece in its early period was a loose collection of independent city-states. Many of these were oligarchies. The most prominent Greek oligarchy and the state 
with which democratic Athens is most often associated with or compared to was Sparta. Yet Sparta, in its rejection of private wealth as a primary social differentiator, was a peculiar kind of oligarchy, and some scholars note its resemblance to democracy. In Spartan government, the political power was divided between four bodies, two Spartan kings, a council of elders, including the two kings, the representatives of the citizens who oversaw the kings, and the assembly of Spartans. It is this Spartan view of democracy that ended up forming the constituent parts of the Roman Republic that then fell to the Roman Empire. Even before the ancient Greek city-states, in early Sumer, kings like Gilgamesh did not hold the autocratic power that later Mesopotamian rulers wielded. Rather, major city-states functioned with council of elders and, inverted commas, young men, likely free men, that possessed the final political authority and had to be consulted on all major issues such as going to war. Now going back to Athenian democracy, voting was seen as the least democratic among methods used for selecting public officials and was little used because elections were believed to be inherently flavor of the wealthy and well-known over the average citizen. Viewed as more democratic were assemblies open to all citizens and selection rather than a rotation of office. Another early claimant for early democratic institutions comes from the independent republics of India, the Sangh and the Gangan, which existed as early as the 6th century BC and persisted in some areas until the 4th century AD. Sangh is essentially a gathering or an assembly. The Ghana simply means assembly or tribe. Going back to the Greeks, for Aristotle, the underlying principles of democracy are reflected in his work, Politic. And I am going to quote Aristotle directly. Now a fundamental principle of the democratic form of constitution is liberty. That is what is usually asserted implying that only under this constitution do men participate in liberty, for they assert this as the aim of every democracy. But one factor of liberty is to govern and be governed in turn, for the popular principle of justice is to have equality according to number, not worth. And if this is the principle of justice prevailing, the multitude must be of necessity, be sovereign, and the decision of the majority must be final and must constitute justice. For they say that each of the citizens ought to have an equal share, so that it results in democracies the poor are more powerful than the rich, because there are more of them, and whatever is decided by the majority is sovereign. This then is one mark of liberty which all Democrats set down as a principle of the Constitution. And one is for a man to live as he likes, for they say that this is the function of liberty. Inasmuch as to live not as one likes is the life of a man that is a slave. This is the second principle of democracy, and from it has come the claim not to be governed, preferably not by anybody, or failing that, to govern and be governed in turns, and this is the way in which the second principle contributes to equal- equalitarian liberty.
End quote. But here I must stop. One, because even though we are clutching at straws to link what we assume democracy to be in June 2021 with democracy centuries ago, things got even less democratic as empires and civilizations came and went. By today's standards, none of these were actually democracies. So let's look at today's standards. What are those standards? And at least what I think a modern democracy is. And I think there are 10 things. And I'm going to list them out right now. Number one, a secret ballot that is free and fair. Two, one person, one vote for all legal, adult, non-criminal citizens of a country. Number three, the public has multiple choices from many political entities. Number four, a non-partisan national election commission to oversee elections. Number five, a media that is free to air any viewpoints without pressure from the government machinery. Number six, the government or deep state stays out of party politics. Number seven, people have rights to privacy regardless of the circumstances. Number eight, enforced rules, laws, and regulations must be adhered to. Number nine, a separation of powers between the judiciary and executive are critical. And number 10, a devolution of powers of all branches of government need to be maintained. As you can tell, my definition of democracy does not require one to be in a republic. A monarchy with all these points can be a democracy too. Sometimes I am told that certain countries are not ready for democracy. I do not think that is true. It is not that someone is not ready for democracy, but that their culture, their norms and history do not require democracy. Democracy is not to be confused with rights and freedoms, because democracy is ultimately a process and activity. That brings us to the next point I'd like to consider, the types of democracy. And I've kind of broken it down into three. One, multi-party system. Two, a two-party system. And three, a dominant party system. So a multi-party system is one where many parties clamor for power. A good example of this is the Indian system with many choices, both at the state and national levels. A two-party system is where the elector has a choice really between just two political parties. It's an electoral duopoly. The USA is a good example of this. A dominant party system is where one political party dominates elections, election after election. South Africa is such an example where the ANC or African National Congress keeps getting re-elected. Each of these can be at a national or sub-national level. Then we have the, then we have the types of leaderships, and I'm going to break it down to three. Number one, parliamentary system. Number two, presidential system. And number three, a constitutional monarchy. 
A constitutional monarchy is where the monarch remains the head of state, but the governance is democratic. The UK is a good example. Often, the monarchy system breeds a parliamentary system of democracy. A presidential system is where the head of state is nominated or elected. This includes countries such as Germany. You can also get a combined presidential and parliamentary system, such as France and India. And what's the difference between a presidential and a parliamentary system? Well, in a presidential system, a lot more power exists with the individual in the office of president. In a parliamentary system, that power technically resides with parliament or that assembly, but it often votes for one person whom most of the power resides with. In many cases, that person is known as a prime minister. Now that we've seen what a democracy technically is, maybe one of the ways to understand a democracy is, in the modern context at least, to understand what it isn't. And I've broken this down into three categories, three broad categories that I will go into a little bit more detail. But number one, dictatorships. Number two, a theocracy. And number three, an anarchy. So let's start with dictatorship. A dictatorship is a form of government characterized by a single leader or group of leaders and little or no correlation for political pluralism or independent media. A military dictatorship is a dictatorship in which the military exerts complete or substantial control over political authority, and the dictator is often a high-ranking military officer. You can also have non-military dictators, of course. But what is authoritarianism? Authoritarianism is characterized by the rejection of political plurality the use of strong central power to preserve the political status quo and reductions in the rule of law, separations of power and democratic voting. There is a correlation between authoritarianism and dictatorship. But then what's an autocracy? That is a system of govern government in which supreme power over the state is concentrated in the hands of just one individual whose decisions are subject to neither external, legal, or internal constraints. Good examples of autocracies can be Tsarist Russia and also modern Russia. You can be an autocrat, but that is not the same as a totalitarian system. A totalitarian system is the idea that a government or political system must prohibit opposition, must restrict individual opposition to the state, and it exercises an extremely high degree of control over public and private life. A totalitarian, as the name total, it is regarded as the most extreme and complete form of authoritarianism. Totalitarian governments are often characterized by lots of political repression, a lack of democracy, of course, widespread, widespread personality cultism, absolute control over the economy, mass censorship, mass surveillance, limited freedom of movement, the inability to just go and leave the country at will, and widespread use of domestic state 
terrorism. A theocracy is a form of government in which a deity of some type is recognized as the, as the supreme ruling authority, giving divine guidance to human intermediaries that manage the day-to-day affairs of the government. The current Iranian system of government is a theocracy, as is Vatican City. The Romans, after becoming Christians, had their emperors as God's regents on earth. In other places of Europe, we had the concept of the divine right of kings. In ancient Egypt, we also had the king as a divine figure. Japan's emperors were venerated as the descendants of the Shinto goddess Amaterasu. The emperor himself was seen as a living god who was the supreme leader of the Japanese people. An anarchy is a society being freely constituted without authority or a governing body. It may also refer to a society or a group of people that entirely rejects a set hierarchy. Anarchy, interestingly, was first used in 1539, meaning an absence of government. Today, Afghanistan is a good example of a society that has an absence of government. Looking at all these systems, democracy seems delightful. At least the person you dislike has a shelf life of some form, and the system has an inbuilt succession plan of some kind. Earlier, I had mentioned the terms universal suffrage. So what is universal suffrage? Well, universal suffrage gives the right to vote to all adult citizens, regardless of wealth, income, gender, social status, race, ethnicity, political stance, or any other restriction subject only to minor exceptions, typically things like criminality, without deliberate and overt fudging by the government or state apparatus. So who is the earliest democracy? Based on our modern understanding of democracy and universal suffrage, let's take a look. Let's start with the United States, who people consider, by the way, as the oldest democracy. But they did have slavery to 1865. Then active segregation of black populations until 1965. Women did not have the vote until 1919. The natives were in reservations. And that segregation lasted longer. But let's go with 1965 as the year democracy started in the US. What about India, the world's largest democracy? There had always been the issue of caste in in the lands known as India for centuries. But as an independent republic, universal adult suffrage started in 1950 as the country did become a republic. 1950 is impressively early. The United Kingdom gave women the right to vote by 1928 to all adult women. Not bad. They also allowed all Commonwealth citizens a vote. Again, not bad. That included non-British citizens living in the UK, and it included people of different ethnicities. 
Canada is interesting. In 1920, Canada enacted suffrage for federal elections for both male and female citizens, with exceptions for Chinese Canadians and Aboriginal Canadians. For provincial elections, female suffrage was established between 1916 and 1940. Chinese Canadians, regardless of gender, was given suffrage in 1947, while Aboriginal Canadians were not allowed to vote until 1960, regardless of gender. So Canada became a democracy in 1960. In Australia, men's suffrage started in the 1850s, while women's in the early 1900s. But Indigenous Australians did not get franchised until the 1960s. But wait, hold on. On the 19th of September 1893, the British Governor of New Zealand, Lord Glasgow, gave assent to a new electoral act which meant that New Zealand became the first British-controlled colony in which women had the right to vote in parliamentary elections. This was followed shortly after by the colony of South Australia in 1894, which was the second to allow women the vote, but the first colony to permit women to stand for elections as well. Twelve years later, the autonomous Russian territory, known then as the Grand Duchy of Finland, which now is the Republic of Finland, became the first territory in the world to implement unrestricted universal suffrage as women could stand as candidates, unlike in New Zealand and without indigenous ethnic exclusion like in Australia. It also led to the election of the world's first female members of parliament the following year, i.e. 1918. So is Finland the world's first democracy? Not so fast. Norway introduced universal suffrage in 1913. So the US was the first to introduce democracy at least at the theoretical level. But it did not have universal suffrage until the 1960s, making it about average as to when modern democracy with universal suffrage started. But is democracy all it is cracked up to be? For some societies, like Afghanistan, Iraq, Syria, even Russia, China, Singapore, they do not have democracy. In the case of China and Singapore, they are doing extremely well without democracy. But then you must put up with the same rulers forever. And that may be okay if you are safe and prosperous, but if you've had enough of the incumbent, it's tough luck. Then there are democracy experiments, like with Russia, that failed, that tried and failed. Then there's democracy at the end of a bullet, like in Afghanistan and Iraq, again, failing miserably. It's not that they are not ready, but it is that once you've gone through a civil war, it's better to fix yourself first by building safe communities, jobs and infrastructure. It's better to have hospitals and food than a chance to vote. Ultimately, that's more priority than an election. Democracy means rule by the people. However, everyone has varying degrees of democracy, even today. The Economist Intelligence Unit, or EIU, published by The Economist magazine, runs a democracy index every year. They have some fuzzy methodology, but in short, they are one of the few groups who do do this. 
they categorize into full democracy, flawed democracy, a hybrid, and an authoritarian system for different countries around the world. We already talked about what a full democracy and authoritarian system is. So what's a flawed democracy? Well, these are nations where elections are fair and free and basic civil liberties are honored, but may have issues. Example, a media, media freedom, infringement, and minor suppression of political opposition critics. These nations have significant faults in other democratic aspects also, including underdeveloped political cultures, low levels of participation in politics, and issues in the functioning of governance. Per The Economist, a hybrid system is a nation where regular electoral frauds preventing it from being free and fair happen. These nations commonly have governments that apply pressure on political opposition parties, non-independent judiciaries, there's widespread corruption, there's harassment, and pressure is placed on the media. Countries like Canada, Mauritius, the UK, Norway, Finland, Iceland, South Korea, and others are considered full democracies. The US, India, Sri Lanka, Brazil, Indonesia, Poland, among others, fall into the flawed democracy category. Ukraine, Bolivia, Fiji, Pakistan, and others are considered hybrid. Russia, Cuba, China, Cambodia, again among others, are examples of authoritarian systems. Democracy isn't the be-all and end-all of everything. Life is fine in non-democratic countries. In many cases, they're better than democratic ones. The big benefit, however, of democracies is that, like I stated before, the people in charge and their egos are temporary before it is replaced with another person with a huge ego. Plus, it gives the state a clear succession plan. Most importantly, however, democracies make life more fun in my view. The arguments in parliament, the mudslinging in the media, the blatant lies, the clearly biased media, family arguments over the silliest of politics and the opportunity to vote and then not bothering to vote at the end in the end is all fun and part of it all. If you have the stomach for it, you too can throw your hat in the ring yourself. In non-democracies, this aspect of life is missing. Sure, you can talk behind closed doors and slag someone off, but to watch the media circus is pure entertainment and joy that those of you in non-democracies just do not get the chance to participate in. Politics in democracies have been the ultimate reality TV since they became democracies those decades ago, and long may it continue. You have been listening to an Alternative History Podcast. Please make sure to like, subscribe, and follow on your podcast platform of choice. Oh, and even if you do not listen to this on Apple Podcasts, please still go over there and leave a comment. It helps others find the podcast.